Hi, Advisory Board Nation. This is Tom Adams, and I want to welcome you to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. Today, today, you're in for a ride, a wild and unexpected ride with Dr. John O'Dwyer. John is an adjunct professor and the executive in residence at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Uh, he's professor of Rotman's most loved elective MBA course, Getting It Done. Over the past 30 years, John's professional career has spanned financial, HR, operational management areas, and has also been a president, CEO, and business owner. John is currently a partner with Strategic Advisory International, a management consulting firm that focuses on providing client organizations with management tools that enable them to transform their winning strategies into genuine results. On top of that, John is an interesting character. You know, my goal on this podcast is to introduce you to people and perspectives in the advisory board space, advisors that take all shapes and styles. And today you'll experience a style in Dr. John that uh, is uninhibited, honest, in your face, and because of that, very refreshing. He calls it like it is. He tells it like it is. And you're going to get his full expression of that on today's episode. So buckle up. You're about to go on a wild and crazy ride. Here we go. Dr. John O'Dwyer, welcome to the Advisory Board Insider Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Okay, now hold on. It's it's going back to 2000 and Fast Company personal branding is Doc John, and it was it was a joke more than anything else. I have a PhD, but I'm not a proper doctor. Okay. Okay, so we're well, just calling you. We're calling you either Doc John or John. So yes. Okay. All right. So <laughs> shall I start again? <laughs> no, that's okay. I just. <laughs> I just, you know, there's people who are proper doctors. I'm right. not. All right. You're you're just a PhD. You're just a PhD with a whole lot of other credentials behind your name, which we'll get to. But let's start with what are your geographic coordinates today? Where where are you located? I'm in, I would say, Mimico, which is a small little, was a small little village of Toronto. And looking out my window, well, actually, we've got the smoke thing here. Normally, I can see the CN Tower, but the smoke's in today. But I'm at about 12 kilometers, sorry, whatever that is in miles, right from downtown Toronto. Okay, so Toronto is the major coordinate, but you're in a, a tiny little or, or part of Toronto, which is no longer little and tiny. It's a massive global city, which I know from reading through some of your stuff that you really like Toronto. Toronto's a, a real city that you have fallen in love with. And actually, you say it quite right, because when so I met my wife at Western, she was, I said, she has a proper PhD. Oh. Industrial and organizational psychology. Okay. My one's just in management and we could get into that if you wanted to, but probably not. I'd piss off too many profs. But uh, <laughs> when I had, I actually had a green card for the U.S. at the same time. And I wanted to go to Boston. Oh. Wife, Kathy, has her sister here. She's going to Toronto. And so it wasn't my first choice, but actually it's changed in the time we moved here in 94 and it, it, it has changed dramatically. I say to people all the time, Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world yeah. that works. We're not perfect, but sorry, you, you come to Toronto and you know, we got little, little, everything, little, Italy, yeah. little, 
India, little Pakistan, little Greece, little whatever, you know, you know, it is the most, I would say the most multicultural city in the world and, and it works. And it's, we're on the lake. It's right. a beautiful location. Yeah. It's a great city. And I, I lived there many years ago and I have uh, great memories of Toronto. And so it's good to know where you're located, but you're obviously not Canadian. There is a little bit of a uh, accent brewing beneath the surface. So we'll get to that in a moment. But as we normally do on this podcast, I always like to figure out what the morning drink of choice is. So what's your morning drink of choice, John? I haven't in the cup, but actually I'm not supporting that one. They're way overpriced, but coffee. Coffee. And so are you Are you kind of a snob about coffee or do you just take what comes out of the, the oh, drip machine I, or you pour uh, over or what? Coffee. what's your thing? I had an espresso machine and actually gave it to my niece and now have a Keurig machine because I can get the cheap junk from Walmart or from, from Costco. <laughs> Because I'm not, I'm not fussy about my coffee. I apologize. Got it. Okay. Just to round out who you are, because I feel like we're going to have an interesting conversation, but what's, what's a typical morning look like for you? So either before you get the coffee, do you start with the coffee and then jump into life? Or do you have this routine in the morning and then coffee comes after? What, what's an average morning look like for you? you know, if I go look at the last week, Monday and Tuesday, I was volunteering for a nonprofit. I'm a sort of a surrogate senior leadership team member. We're doing strategic planning and I volunteer for them at Windmill Micro Lending. They support new immigrants. Oh, cool. You know, they go from prosperity, from potential prosperity, give micro lanes, loans to people so they can get their accreditation. People coming in that are professionals. So it's potential prosperity for the individual, but also for the country. Do you get what mm. I'm saying? So yep. Those two days, no, I was there and um they actually buy me a coffee. Okay. <laughs> I get paid. I actually did get paid. I had to do, I had to put that coffee that, and they bought me lunch as well. I had to put that oh, on my tax return. I think that's a tax I return. Charge. Yes. And then Wednesday, yeah, it was, I get up, I turn the machine on. It's not on all the time. I come to this computer here, hit the button, wait for it to wake up and get in. And then usually spend about 10 minutes getting rid of a hundred junk emails. Before I get the regular ones, and at that stage, the coffee is is ready, and then I I get to work. But then yesterday, Thursday, I was doing a gig with my colleague, my teaching colleague, for actually for Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, where we're doing in-house training. So mm. again, I was down there for seven thirty. So no. So, so you don't seem to have an average day, and I oh. got that sense just by reading your LinkedIn profile, your bio. Just follow, trying to follow you around the world a little bit, and there there seems nothing ordinary about you. So I can't imagine you have an ordinary day. So well, that's good to know. But let let's jump in because I I always like to explore where you came from, and we already alluded to the fact that you're Irish. But take me back into second level when you're in Dublin, Ireland. So you grew up in Dublin. You're in second level, which to those of us not from Ireland recognize that probably as secondary school, high school, however you want to call it. But what what's happening in your life at that point? What's going on? What are you thinking about? Okay, there were five of us kids. I was four out of five. Big sister, four boys. I was three out of four. Okay. And um, I have a tie, a tie that has black sheep on it. Okay. Most from when I was five to when I left high school, I was dropped off. Both my parents were from, you know, from farms. My mother was a nurse. Daddy was to have business, but eventually a bar manager. I got dropped off, you know, school ends on a Friday. Saturday, I'm down on my aunt and uncle's farm, milking cows, bringing in the hay and walking the greyhounds and slopping out from the pigs. 
and school started on a Monday and I brought back on a Sunday, the odd time on a Saturday. So I mean, I loved it. I've got two families. I've got my country cousins, we're called. And so I was very fortunate to, and, and they didn't have actually running water till, or, till I was 16. So we won't talk about all that. But so I was very fortunate to have the best of both worlds in my eyes. School to me, and part of, I would say, our success, the course I teach my new partner now for three years, Brendan retired. January will be our 23rd year. And so we say at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, where Rotman's longest running, and I brag and I apologize, most awarded elective MBA course. So it's elective. They have to bid for it, right? And right. not too many last 23 years. Right. And the reason is I hated high school. If I was here, I'd be a high school dropout. I was kicked out of three of his classes by March of my final year. But it's standardized testing. The Department of Education sent me my, my please turn up at my school, different invigilators, and I got kicked out. And let's put it this way. There was culpability on both parts because I never got reported to the principal. My parents never knew about it. And I studied by myself and I went to school every day, attended some classes, didn't. And I actually got enough points to be accepted for the two big universities in Ireland, Trinity College Dublin, University College Dublin for Bachelor of Science. And Mammy says, which one are you going to? And I says, none of them. I'm not spending about four years listening to some water. <laughs> okay, I'm mean, trying to be polite here. And Mammy looked at me and goes, I said, Daddy can get me a job in the bar. And she looked at me and goes, yeah, right. Okay, well, she didn't even say that. I go, that's not happening. My brother had a girlfriend at the time who knew somebody was looking for an afternoon clerk for accounting. Hmm. We were streamed. I was in the B class, C's and D's, the accounting. I didn't know what accounting was. I asked what's involved five years ago. What's that? Was like an apprenticeship? Sure. And what's the study you make? You do a nine month college course. So I said, okay, keep mammy happy. I'll do it. No, nothing about accounting. And then that's how I ended up in accounting as like, whatever I got the, I didn't know, but seemed me I'm good at numbers. And then. Out of 105 of us, well, I don't know, five of us had to get special permission because we weren't within a year of the end of our five years articles because we sat the four exams. You sit the first one and then our peers were the three and four year BCom people. Mm. They should do. And then professional one and then the FAE. I was fortunate. You can't do it anymore. And again, sorry, I'm bragging, but and my mother couldn't believe it. My mother thought, my mother thought that, oh my God, he hasn't hope because she knew friends whose kids hadn't. And the pass rate in 1979 in Ireland, they used to control it like the, the lawyers did it as well. Mm. Pass rate was 24.3% because that was the number, you know, X number we're applying and we only need so many of them and they cut it off. Anyway, I passed my FAE at 21. Now I didn't become an accountant until I was 22 or three. And what comes to it is, so the teaching when I designed and at Western, I got into shit like one, one summer, three years in, my advisor says, who was a sailor up in Lake Euron, he says, I'm back in town, John, I need to see you urgently. And I go, oh my God, what did I do? Here to pick up some three of us. See me at three o'clock, don't be late. I said, hey, how, John, how's the sailing gone? Stop this. What's this? And it was the transcript for the courses I was taking about theory of adult education, curriculum design, practice of teaching, all this type of stuff. And I says, well, I want to teach. And he says, John, publish or perish. Forget about the students. And out of, for five years that I was there, about 15 at the time, PhD students across the different areas. So say a cohort of 75, 
there was me and one other lady who ever took those courses. Mm. They see teaching to me, I'm passionate about it. And, right. and I took all that. And that's why I'm not, you know, the publisher parish, I did that crap. But, but to this day is when I teach, you see, I teach for that asshole called John O'Dwyer. Mm. I can keep his attention. Right. I don't have to worry about the rest. Right. Right. Cause you're the, you're the hardest one to keep. You're the hardest one to keep your own attention. Yeah. They'd be giving me, they'd be giving me Ritalin yeah. if they had it in my right. day. You see, I'm showing right. my age. Right. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's the, the, to me, it's a failure of the people in the front of the room. I'm sorry. You got me on. A, you shouldn't have asked me that question. Oh, okay. Well, we'll, we'll go off in another direction, but yes. so, yes. so you get your accounting degree or you get your accounting designation and yes. then you've done that for five years. So roughly five years. And so you've got your, you've passed that. Give me a sense of the, the path that your journey took without getting too stuck in the weeds on it. But just, I read your, your bio. I read your bio on the University of Toronto website. I've read it on LinkedIn. I've, I've found your bio in terms of a more complex one. And I mean, you, you've done things like you sort of went up the scale. You worked at places like KPMG. I mean, like you took this, what apparently is someone who is a little bit of a challenging student, you made your way through something and then that you started leveraging that somehow you started stair-stepping that thing into the next thing and then the next thing. So give me a sense of that, at least just a, a general arc of the story from there. Where did you go in industry specifically? Before you got yeah, oh, back into education. Yeah. So, and actually I was in a small firm and actually it's interesting. I go and I actually changed articles, which you couldn't really do that easy. I went to a medium firm and then actually, cause it was three of us and me and the boss didn't quite get on. And then after I left, I went back working from after hours and that we got on great. Okay. So it was just interesting, hard dynamic. And then I went into medium firm and then I went into actually the rag trade as a group accountant. And then I was in London from 80 to 82 for the CFO for one of their subsidiaries there. And then I came from that to KPMG in corporate finance. And then out of that, I got recruited to set up a corporate finance company and then a venture capital company. And then we had an investment in an aviation services company here and their present CEO got killed demonstrating a prototype aircraft down in Bogota, Colombia. And you know, I was on their board and I was a pain, but you know, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. So I landed in 87 in Canada, mainly to refinance it. Black Monday 87, put this, if you're, you might be old enough for Black Monday 87, most people won't be. Yep. And then I had this objective of, you know, quite fairly to be present CEO of a company, have shareholding and all that type of good stuff. And I'd done that, wasn't work much. And I said, okay, what am I going to do next? And because I'd worked at that stage from, you know, basically from 18, I'd worked for 10 years and accounting is beautiful, corporate finance. My abiding takeaway was organizations that this day fail to leverage their key asset, their human capital. Mm. And I was stupid. I didn't do my homework. So I picked, okay, what do I need to learn? Organizational behavior. I could have gone to Western at that stage. The finance people were able to get out in about two and two and a half years if I joined finance, which I could have easily done. But idiot me is, no, I want to learn about people. So it was a five-year trip, which I loved. And that's what brought me into academia. And oh, then, okay. and then I hadn't, then I learned, oh, it's publisher perish. And I did best papers and articles and chapters and books and cases and all that type of stuff. But I said, no, I want to make a difference on a day-to-day -day basis. I don't want to wait for the two-year peer review and all that stuff. They now have from about two years ago. So I was 25, I was at, what would you call it? Generation too soon. They mm. now have teaching stream, but there's no one hiring an old fart like me 
in the teaching stream. But they now have what I would have been mm. up for. So I went out and worked as a, as a consultant and I'm still doing that to this day. Got it. So, so you've got this journey, which takes you through finance. Finance yeah. leads you to leadership in finance, private equity. Then you're on a board of a place. You actually then take over that company, but it's in that role that you went, I understand finance, but I don't understand people. Or did you understand people and just not know how to leverage it? Or what What was the thing that really drove you to go do this now, this study in organizational behavior? What was the What was the thing missing in you that you felt like you needed to get? It, it was more 10 years of work experience and, and it would be more as the accountant, corporate finance, seeing all the different corporations I'd work with and saying, I'm not saying I was a great manager, but I don't know how many we had in the corporate finance co company and venture capital company, but I think I had it up to 15 or something. It's still small. But I mean, I don't know as I was excellent, but I don't think I was disastrous. So it wasn't more about, it was more about helping other organizations mm. that we just, I needed to learn more. Right. It, it, and this, my problem is still taking stupid courses. So I'm not practicing at 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock last night. It's more about, I needed to learn more right. about helping organizations with how to leverage their people and help them, their people be better. It's just a have might be you know, a weakness I have is stupid curiosity. And I'm still taking stupid courses. I mean, why am I taking courses, right? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a weird bug that gets in certain people that they just can't help themselves. And I, I feel like I'm, I'm like you that I, I can't stop myself. I buy books like stupid. You know, my book budget outperforms pretty much every other budget more than computers, more than anything. I buy books, but I don't know. There's this really co cool, I think, that I just see in people like you, which is this this insatiableness, which is you get it and you just want a bit more and you go for another thing and you get another yeah. thing. And Frick, I noticed on your like, you know, when when I looked at some of your bio stuff and I start noticing the certifications that you not just your Ph.D. and your MBA, it's like 800 uh, certifications that follow your name, which is quite, it's both admirable and it's also crazy. And you're a little bit of both, I sense. No, it's no, I'm, I keep on, it's like stupid is what it is, but I can't, if I have an addiction, yeah, it's, um, I need to get another, I, I got I put something on LinkedIn. Yeah. You know, got this other certification, you know, cause I needed more letters after <laughs> my name. Right. Well, let's, let's go back. Cause you, you hinted at it. And because a lot of people who might listen to this may not know your connection with uh, the Rotman school of management at the university of Toronto, but you mentioned this course that you run. It's the highest awarded, longest running elective MBA course at the school. I've read some of the reviews of that in, in preparing for our conversation today. But tell me a little bit more just generally about the nature of that course and why you think it's actually been the longest running, most attended. You, you hinted at it, which is you're trying to keep you personally, like you're the student in this class and you're trying to keep yourself engaged. So I get that part of it, but why else do you think this particular course, give us a sense of it and why it is so attractive to people? It's called getting it done. Okay. I, let me tell you where it came from. So my, my previous teaching partner, Brendan, who's retired, he's now professor emeritus at, at the University of Toronto. He was managing director for a time for the MBA full-time program. And a number of students came to him and said, Brendan, where at the Rotman School of Management do we learn about management? And he says, you know, she got strategy, you got operations, you got finance, you got organization behavior, you got whatever, you got this right. all. And they says, yes, Brendan, but where do we learn how to get it done? 
So uh, of course okay. that's that was it. Brendan and I know each other going. We'd done motorcycle trips together and things like that. And so and he was a client and me and my previous business partner, we said, Hey, open source, open source. We give away the course gives away our IP, what you would say, right? That says, here's a management system, right? In the center is here's your what's your purpose? What's your vision? What's your values? Now, what's your strategy? Then how do you deploy it and get alignment? Mm. Then how do you manage your results, checkpoints, course corrections, and then continuous improvement? How do you stay best in class? And it's a comprehensive management system. We say it's a, it's a doing course, not a memorizing course. It's what would be called from an academic perspective, active learning. And it's been that since day one. And from about, I think, 10 years ago when simulations appeared, and I'll tell you the first one we used was a disaster, but anyway, there's some great now management simulations. So right. we put, we got 30 students, six teams of five, and they're running, they start off on day one, they have to come up with the name for the business, how they're going to compete. So we put them in a pressure cooker, I would say. Well, hopefully the students aren't listening, but anyway, oh no, they know. We put them in a pressure cooker and they're running a business. And they have basically every two days or sometimes one day, it's a quarter, quarter results for the business type thing. And we don't bring them through to the full two year thing, but it's basically, it is based on the, the concept of team formation, right? Mm. The model of forming, storming, forming, performing. And so the design is Monday, Tuesday, it's a 10 day intensive Monday to Friday each day. Okay. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they're in the forming and storming. Thursday and Friday, we do interventions and then they have Monday and Tuesday and to finish off and basically, and it, it's, they go through it and they bitch and complain. <laughs> Why did I buy this course? Yeah. Cause and executive it's, it's, MBA I'm, courses at Rotman are not inexpensive. Well, but the thing is then, I mean, and I'm bragging last January this year that we got, they changed the rate, but we got the previous year, we got 6.7 on a scale of seven which we thought was a record this year to change it. I didn't know. Anyway, and we have 5.5 out of five. Wow. Wow. So, but the thing is when they get to the Wednesday, Thursday, mm. the whole system comes together because they've gone through, because we, you know, they, br we bring them through the whole manual. And at the end of the day, the light bulb goes on and they go, holy shit. Okay. I get what those assholes were trying to get me to learn. Okay. You know, so it's, it's a system. It's active learning. It's doing, you see. Right. Right. And like, even in the class, our system is, Hey, we talk for a little bit. Then there's individual work, self-reflection, then there's teamwork, then there's class discussion and moving on. We are not forever. We said, we're not the sage on the stage Yeah, we're your guide on the side. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, you know, it's active learning, you know, Kelly and I is, you know, my new one, if you know, we're, we're earlier on this morning. We're talking for 15 minutes. That's way too friggin' long. Okay. Well, the wire shut his mind off. Okay. Right. So, so this, this course, it, there's an active learning component, but, but I, if you're open to it, I would, I, I read some of the course syllabus that I found at the Rotman school. And there's these four categories that you talk about in the course syllabus. And, and I know you've just given us some of the context of how you teach it and some of the structure of it, but there's these four core concepts. You talk about strategic choice, organizational alignment. Yep. managing for results and continuous improvement. Those seem to be the four that I pulled out and I may be wrong on that. So correct me if I'm wrong, but 
can you kind of unpack those four things? Because I, I feel like you're a teacher and you're often on the side instead on the stage. But I, I just want you to unpack those four things and why they matter in management specifically, as opposed to organizational design, strategic thinking. But those four things, strategic choice, organizational alignment, kind of unpack those for me in a few minutes. Well, no, well, let me go was in the middle, though, is your purpose, vision, and values. That, to me, is huge. Okay. I think it's Daniel Pink, whatever. Motivation 3.0. The young kids, that could be anybody under 50 for me. But anyway, it is, they want autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Yep. So, as I say, with the, you know, the nonprofits that volunteer for, they're so clear, but Windmill Micro Lending, the purpose is so potential prosperity. There's no, it's one of those ones. Yes. I'd be proud to wear it on my t-shirt. Mm. Hey, and then the mastery is they say people aren't as loyal to organizations, but loyal to their careers. Are you helping them grow and develop? And then the, the other one is autonomy. You're hiring adults, which it give them role clarity and accountability, give them resources and get out of the bloody way, but be there to coach and mentor. But anyway, the purpose is in the center. And then out of the purpose and the vision is, and, and so on the strategy, we use Roger Martins as a past dean. He says, what's our winning aspiration, right? Which should tie to the vision. Is, you know, what's our you know, winning aspiration as an organization? And out of that then is, okay, here's where you want to be, depending where you want to go, three, five years. And out of that, okay, what's our, what's our strategy to get there? And then the key bit then is, okay, what do we got to deliver as an organization for the next fiscal year? Mm. You, take, you take that one step on the three-year or five-year journey. And once you have that, how do you communicate that down to your people? Right. And how do you get every use triangles? How do you get everybody aligned? Right. <clears throat> so it's it's a deployment process which gets you the alignment. And then it is okay. And it's we use a thing called a performance agreement. The other word, they plagiarized us. They came after us actually, Kaplan and Orton, the scorecard. Performance agreement goes back to nineteen seventy-four. Bill Dr. Bill Redden, but we won't argue about it. But it is here's your performance agreement. And they're all aligned. The triangles are all aligned. And so that actually the receptionist guy knows, here's what I'm doing. Here's what my boss is doing. Here's what our department's doing. Here's where the organizer's going. So that's the key thing about alignment. Mm-hmm. They know how they contribute. And then they have checkpoint processes, which are results management. They can call it performance management. We yep. refer to most management. It's about outputs. I don't care what do you if you're in sales, I don't care if you turn up five days a week, as long as you hit your targets. And I've known people who could do that on the golf course in three days. God bless. <laughs> right? Don't play golf. And then continuous improvement is how are we staying best in class and ahead of the competition? So, you know, what's your strategy? What, what's your vision first? You win an aspiration, your strategy, deploy it down. Everybody's aligned. We're checkpointing along the way, doing course corrections because shit happens. Right? Yep. And then we're staying best in class. And so it's, you know, with the organization, I mean, I got organizations I work with. I mean, I'll be in Chicago in July for two days and I'll be in with that our same organization in November for two days because it's an annual cycle. And that's the discipline of execution. Mm. The discipline of execution. You put it in the bloody calendar a year in advance. Everybody knows. We know what's happened for Christ's sake. It's like if you're a, and there was in the public quoted company, you knew when you had to get your this the London Stock Exchange, we knew when we had to get ourselves into the London Stock Exchange. Why wouldn't it be in the bloody calendar? As right. the saying with a management system, why wouldn't you have it in the bloody calendar? Mm. Laziness, lack of discipline. 
Right. Sorry. So, so there's a there's a cadence to yes. the system that's yes. really important too. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I got one one client, Tim. Actually, he's the guy in Chicago. He's CFO. I've been through four Fortune 100 companies with him, and every time he brings me in, this is John Edward. He's not everybody's cup of tea, but he's my cup of tea. He's a management system. There's other management systems there. It works for me. You'll get used to him, and you get used to the system. Right. And that's what we're doing. <laughs> All right. So. Well, you you have a have an affinity, obviously, to some of your you know your peers from Rotten, but you talk a little little bit about Bill Redden, and I went in in preparation. I've read Bill Redden before, but you have, uh, you have, yeah. But you 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 mentioned at one point, and it's not in your course curriculum. It's somewhere else. I find this, which is managing of others is self management. And how how do you see that line that Bill Redden de- delivered? Managing of others is self management because it ties back to, you know, your own rhythms and cadences in terms yeah. of running a business. That that's management side of things. What's your take on Bill's statement in that case? And actually, I tend to turn it around because it confuses some people. And, so, and I say, if you can't manage yourself, you can't manage others. So and so where do you see He was see taking people... it from the other, he was taking right. it from the results end. Right. And, and, I, and I go, I say to people, listen, be the leader you would like to work for. Well, no, how many people do that? Yeah. Mirror test, look in the mirror yeah. and say, oh shit, I shouldn't have done that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Be, and it's kind of, it, it aligns with your philosophy of teaching, which is be the teacher that I would listen to. Yes. Hey, I, I haven't verbalized it or thought it like that, but yes, now that you say it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So from because you've said this, you you teach and and I realize you teach collaboratively in teams and things like that, but you've done this for a long time and you coach, you advise, you consult in a lot of different business scenarios from micro businesses right up to large publicly traded companies. So what's the thing that you're seeing right now? where CEOs, C-suite are struggling the most in today's world right now, what are you hearing from them? What are you observing in them that they might not even know is happening? But what what's the thing that's they're the most challenging for them right now? It's, you know, it's been the same, I think, forever. And you see, in, I gotta say, and I'm, I'm obviously, I'm very biased and very opinionated. Yep. I gotta say 20th century was called human resource management. And I gone, I don't like the word resources because we deplete them in the 21st century. And there is stuff to the New York Stock Exchange, things like that, HCM, human capital management, and you invest in capital. Mm. And, and organizations now, their biggest challenge, I would say, without exception, it'll always be in the top three, doesn't matter what, will be people. And I had presidency over already $6 billion company talk to us a week ago. And he was asked, you know, what's the one thing that keeps you awake at night? People. Yeah. Yeah. Human capital. That's your resource. It doesn't matter whether you're for running a plant. It doesn't matter what you do. It's your people. You're only as good as your people. And so it's human capital management. It's, and that's why, that's why I wanted to do OB. And, you know, okay, now that I'm sort of trying to retire that, yeah, they get it now. I saw it 30 freaking years ago. I'm saying I was ahead of that. I was a freaking generation too bloody early. You know, it's like, but anyway, I haven't. Okay. So that, that, I haven't fun on this one. Okay. Yeah. But human capital management is this big thing. It's this big, big amorphous mass of stuff and it's critical. 
but are are there any specific nuances to oh, that that you're seeing? Big, that's the problem. You say, I don't agree with that. Okay. No, my one is, and I say, forget about it. I said that yesterday. Forget about the legal implications and the, the council goes, what? It says, yo, if you have people reporting to you and if you hire people, because it's at every level in the organization, that's not a big amorphous thing. Yep. It's okay. a culture and a value and a concept that says, hey, you have an ethical and moral responsibility to help that be that person be the best they can be mm. to inspire them to be on to perform beyond their own expectations don't care whether you're a leader or manager that is an ethical and moral responsibility and if everybody who had people reporting to them did that from the top to the bottom the fucking world would be a better place Excuse my language. That's Irish. <laughs> yes, Irish. They, they, the Irish came out there in a really profoundly cool way. So, so no, it's beautiful. It's And, and you know I think what, it's... You know what I'm saying, though? It's, it's yes. Like people should come in to work with a smile on their face. And more importantly, you should leave with a smile on their face. And it doesn't matter what level of the organization they're at. And we had middle managers yesterday. We're saying, forget about up there. Yeah. You can inspire your people. And one of the one of the exercises was what's your winning aspiration for your department? Mm. I did this with another we did this with another organization and it was a financial institution, big bloggedy bloke, whatever, right? And that marketing person was, hey, we're going to be the industry leader for social media presence in our industry. Their people were, I'm telling you, they're going, holy shit, I want to, I'm with that. Like they got actually, they got, because they're marketing, they got mugs made and they got t-shirts and everything, right? You know what I'm saying? But right. you, know, you can inspire your people. You should inspire your people to perform beyond their expectations. That's the job of anybody who hires somebody or has somebody reporting into them, period. And it's not a big mess. It's It has to be passed all the way down, down from the top mm. to the bottom. And the problem is the fish rust from the bloody head down and... That's what's the lack of goddamn leadership of is the problem. Excuse me. No, no, I got it. So if human capital management is the biggest issue and it's really clear what it is to do and it's a leadership down thing, what's the, what's the, you, you've delivered it. Like it's my job as a leader anywhere I am in the organization to, to make it my prime responsibility to make sure the people who work for me show up and have a better life are are excited to show up all of that is is critical to a, a i think keeping people around because that seems to be a challenge right now which is people are just bolting they they because if they don't like the fact that you're a crappy leader they're walking now they're not staying like they used to so no, it, um, no, there is there's many reasons people leave but one of the consistent one and depending on what i'll give you the conservative answer yep 50 percent of the people in their lives have left the job because they're working for an asshole. <laughs> One reason. Right. Right. Okay. Yes. People don't tend to leave organizations. They leave the idiot they're working for. And I've seen it even recently. I'm going, how the hell is he still in his job? There's still dysfunction going on that you think in this day and age, it just frustrates me. No. It, as, it, I get old, as I get older and getting less, less patient and, and more, less like I've become more of an asshole myself. Okay. <laughs> so, so the the cha the challenge I I hear you raising is that the the average leader doesn't actually recognize that they're the problem. 
right? Because yeah. a lot of them are sitting looking at their team and going, you know, you don't think like I do. You don't act like I do. You're not as smart as I am. You're not as motivated as I am because that's language I hear a lot. And what you're saying is the mirror is the place you have to look if you're going to change this thing. Well, actually, you see, I'll actually go actually on a, on a different tack into this one. The Peter Principle, right? Mm -hmm. Which was Captain Peter's. Yep. You get promoted to your level of confidence. Yes. I actually don't agree with that. Okay. That, you see, to me, is a lack of leadership. We get People get promoted because they're experts. And actually, Simon Sinek has a great one on this from management leaders. They get promoted because they're good at their job. And then they're put into, they're put into a position, right, where they're in charge of people, right? And they have to move from being the expert on the job. And as he would say, instead of being in charge, you need to take care of the people in your charge. And it's organizations do not train people and develop people. They promote them, not to their level of competence, to promote them into a position and don't train them to be competent in that position. So, you know, and I've had it over mm. the years, you know, somebody will say to me, we have a problem with that person. I will always, have, for decades, I said, who does that person report into? Why are you asking? Where's the authority in the relationship? That's the person's the problem, not the person. And I was in the Armored Reserves, you know, okay, exalted rank, Aaron of corporal, but it is, you don't blame the private, you blame the people at the next level up. And right. so that's a failure you see of organizations is they promote people and then they don't provide them the training and support so they can develop and adjust from being the one doing the job to being in charge of the people, taking care of the people in their charge, doing the job. Does that yes. make sense? Yeah. Well, it makes complete sense. And it's, I've seen it a lot in, I mean, in many places, but I, I what rises to you know, mine for me immediately is salespeople who are really good at sales yeah. become sales managers, but sales man the sales management job is not being the best salesperson. The sales management job has a completely different yeah. function uh, set of, of directives to it than being a salesperson. And if you just try and act more like you were, but that doesn't work either. And sales management people get either quit or get fired frequently, but they didn't get trained to be a sales manager. They were elevated from being really good at what they do, did into a role that they didn't learn how to do. Well, no, but you see, and that was, that's more, I don't say that's more historical, that the new ones wouldn't do that. And I, I, I say, I, I mentioned earlier on, if you're a salesperson and you spend five days on the week of golfing and you still get turning your numbers, I don't give a rat's ass. And I knew a couple of people, one in telecoms and one of pharmaceuticals and those who, I don't know if they ever worked today in their life, but they were, they were taken out of the sales competition because they always won it. And they were offered management positions. And I says, you gotta be joking me. I don't want that. I would be no good at it. So right. more and more people, you know, they're saying, no, I don't want to lead. Yeah. I, I know what I'm good at. And yeah. I did my dissertation was lawfare mergers and professional managers of professional service firms, you know, Rainmakers are the ones that are the important people there, but actually most of them couldn't manage to piss up in a brewery, but they can sell. Okay. Right. So it's different, but then, but then you don't get respect in the professional service or if you're not a rainmaker. So they have a whole conflicted God, I'm okay. won't go there. Professional okay. service first was a, was a speciality of mine, but anyway. Okay. Well, another thing I didn't know about you. So this show is actually about advisory boards. So let's, let's okay. uh, pivot a little bit. Please. So, 
So you, based on what I see, you both sat on advisory boards, you sit on governance boards, you're both in not-for-profit and for-profit companies. Give me some of your experience of what you've seen and as as raw and unfiltered as you've been so far, give it to me more. Where where do you see the challenges with, with advisory boards and governance boards? Where do you see people screwing up in that environment? Where do you feel like you're seeing successes? Well, way back in Ireland and it's and in Europe, advisory boards have been around for decades. Yep. I, the German companies in particular are good at because they've got lots of family ones. And the thing about it is the, the, you know, when I was working in venture capital in Ireland, I was on, I don't know, half dozen. And part of it was the advisory board doesn't have legal liability. Right. Right. So I mean here, and when I, when I went back to school, I stayed on the board of the, the, the company I was president CEO. I said, Hey, I fired that asshole president CEO. That was me older my VP engineer, but I stayed around for a few years. But you have liability if taxes aren't paid and, and payroll isn't paid. Right. So the beauty of an advisory board, it comes without the legal liability, but you get all the advice. And so, yeah, actually one of the things you probably didn't know, I, I actually, it was a, one of my failed ventures was I tried to set up a advice, take an American French, like tech TC, it does. Anyway. It didn't work for me, but I totally believe the concept of having, it's lonely at the top and having outside advisors is huge. You see, and it's for like the, the whole concept of YPO, Young Presence Organization. I mean, that's the whole concept, right? But not everybody's at that level of, of revenues and things to do it. So advisory boards are huge. You know, it's, it's, what it's not just as lonely at the top. It's good to have people with diverse backgrounds that you can use as a sounding board. I mean, they say I was on one when, because I was young, as I said, like you know, 23 or something. Okay. Wasn't much use maybe, but anyway, but yes, so I mean, you know, but it's having, I could do the numbers though. I could do right. the numbers, right? right? So it's having, having a board of advisors, you know, one, it's people to talk to, cause you can't talk to your director boards the same yes. way. Right? right. And so to me, an advisory board, everybody should have any, any president CEO you know, should have an advisory board, I would say. Yeah. So when they, at least from your perspective and what you've seen and what you've experienced, because as you've talked about it there, there's an element in there, which is more the communication between a CEO and this group of people. But the function of a board, especially an advisory board, when it's not a legal liability system and it's, it's thinking partners, it's, it's pushing you on things, it's giving perspective, but there's the one-on-one interaction, but there's the value of the group sitting together and being involved. How have you seen that distinction between one-to-one interaction with your advisors versus the group dynamic? Oh, no. The, to, to me, it's always the group. Okay. Right? There's Sorry, there's enough research on that. It's diverse mindsets will come up with a better solution. Ah, uh, okay. It's the old, hold on, it's the old, it's the, I, I've seen President CEO do it. It's bullshit. It's called the hub and spoke. I'm in the middle. And I go and out spoke one at a time. I mean, you end up at silos, you end up with crap. No, you need to bring the, the, the diverse viewpoints together. Bring the wheel together. Don't be going out on a spoke. Bring the wheel together. Because, you know, Tom, you and I, you know, the president and CEO came to us and we were on the, we were the advisory board. They said something to us. You probably say one thing. And I go, well, actually, usually the way I go, oh, I didn't think of that. But now that you say that, how about this? And then you would go, oh, can I have about this? And then we'd have other people there. No, no, it is, it is the power 
of a diverse group bringing that diversity. It's proven. I could give you the research. Of, I could look at for you. It's this is yeah. no. This is like freaking manifold one hundred and one. No, it's it's and it's such an important distinction because I think so often in and Europe has had a long history of more formal advisory boards. I I feel like North America, as I you know dig into this, I realize North America tends to have this more ad hoc hub and spoke model of advisory boards. And many people in the U that I've seen, many people in North America tend to have an advisory board just because they want those names sitting in there on their yeah. website, but they're not functionally ineffective. And, and sometimes there is that hub and spoke thing, but I agree completely that what you miss is this really incredible conversation that sparks better results from the yeah. conversation that happens in a group environment where the CEO is present to give, I got this challenge, I got this problem, I've got this thing we're trying right. to accomplish in the world. And this group of people who are bright, intelligent, experienced, rub off of each other. And it, it I don't know, it feels like that that kind of old model of, you know, when you, when you rub, you know, a couple of old pieces of wood together, you get flame. And sometimes I think the missing piece is what you just said there. The hub and spoke model is flawed when we think of advisory boards that way. No, it's not. It's not that it's flawed. It sucks. It shouldn't be used. It's not a model, for Christ's sake. It's bankrupt. Jesus Christ. Hey. <laughs> John, I love well, it. That's in my humble opinion, okay? Yeah, I love it. I And I love your humble opinion on this. So. So you sit on an advisory board. Let's let's kind of come back with a, a slightly different. You're sitting on an advisory board. What's the the sort of superpower you bring? So if I invite you onto an advisory board, and you're sitting there, what's the thing that you're processing all the time? What's the what's the point of view you have, or the way you see around walls that nobody else does typically? What's what's your thing? Is it organizational stuff? Is it people? What's the thing that that you you can't help yourself but get snarky about in these meetings. Well, no, actually, it's it's interesting. When I did a PhD at Western, we had to take their first year strategy course because they were known for strategy, okay? And after, I think, the first week or two, after a few classes, uh, the prof came up to me and said, John, okay, he says, you know, hold back after class. And I said, yeah, I wonder what the hell did I do? And he says, okay, you got your six out of six for participation. Now shut up unless I ask you. And I go, well, what did I do wrong? And it was, I would do my homework always, always come prepared to meetings. I'd read every damn thing going. And I would come in never with the best answer. But then somebody would say something, somebody would say something, somebody would say something. I go, oh, take that, 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 oh, screw that, that, and change my answer. And so whatever, maybe it was 45 minutes into a 90 minute class, I'd put my hand up and give my solution. And the prof, that's what the prof didn't like. And so he says, you, you're coming to it too soon. I need to work the class. Okay. Cause case study stuff. Right. And so I'm never the smartest person in the room, believe it or not, actually, I can shut up and listen. And so I listen for the other perspectives that add to mine. Cause I never have the right, if I never have the best answer. Mm. So it's basically shut up and listen. Now, if you said that to my wife, she'd go, yeah, right. But anyway, you know, it's kind of we're not this. telling her you did this podcast because yeah. we, we don't want to create yeah. marital strife. Shut up and listen and be open to, that's what I'm saying, the diversity of thought that you go, like my one is, damn, I didn't think of that. Jeez, I didn't think of that one either. Wow, I'm slow. Okay, but hold on. If I put that, I did think of that though. They didn't think of that. And I put that and that, that, that together. Uh, 
connect the dots. Yeah. So okay. just it, it shut up and listen and, and connect dots. Got it. That's, that's yeah. the, I mean, that's the whole thing is about the diversity of thought, you know, and here's one of the ones I'll give you, Tom, and it's, it sounds counterintuitive, you see, is particularly because I've worked with a lot of founders, family, bringing in COOs and that, and what it is, is um, you need people with such a strong ego, they have no ego needs. So I don't give mm. a rat's off as it's my decision or not. It's what's right for the organization, what's right for the company, right? You know, I don't have to be, you know, I don't give a rat's ass. At this stage of my life, I don't give a rat's ass. I just leave me out of it. Okay. But here, did you think of this? Okay. And so I don't need my name anywhere. So okay. let me, I just want to repeat that because I, you, you illustrated it, but I just want to make sure I got the point. You, it's really important to have a board around you, an advisory board around you that has strong egos with no ego needs. That's what yeah. you said. Yeah. I say it's, it's Lencioni talks about employing people that should be humble, hungry, and smart. Humble, hungry is always learning, open to learning. And smart is actually smart is directly good at interpersonal skills. And I would say you want people who are yeah, humble. It's not about them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hungry. They want to learn more and they want to learn from each other. Like on the ones I'm on, I go, wow, I got one I'm on and I go, oh, I want to really learn from her because she's in a neat place. I, I can learn there. Right. And then smart is smart as interpersonal skills, EQ and that. So that's, that's what I would say. And I, Hey, listen, I'm still not there. I'm still an asshole. Okay. <laughs> Joe. I'm working on it. It's a work in progress. Okay. Well, I I think we're all a work in, in progress. And uh, I, I'm appreciative of the fact that you're you're humble enough to say that with the strong ego that you possess, which is great. So this has been really helpful. And I, I feel like you and I could go probably another three hours, but we've already almost completed an hour. So, so thank you for all of that. I'd like to end our conversations with just some random crazy questions that okay. I, I hope will... You know, well, that's that's dangerous when you're talking to a crazy man, you know. Oh, I know, I know, and I, I'm I'm fearing the questions I prepared for you, but we'll go with them anyways. So you are a self-described bon vivant, and so what would others describe as the part of you that most fits that specific billing? Because that has a lot of connotation to it. But if not yourself, but if somebody else, people who are close to you, said, "Oh, this is why he's that," what would they say? And actually, it goes back to when. One year I had to go to my father's big brothers, the, the family, the father's farm and Martin, they had no kids. I was 12 years old and Martin is on the farm and say, John, you're as useful as tits in a bull, but you're fun. Get on the tractor. We're going to the pub. And I just, I was, I was on the subway here going downtown and I met the wife of, I was crew for a guy here at Mimico and it, he was without crew. And I'm like, definitely as useful as tits in the bulls crewing right but anyway but and and his wife said we'll have a great time he had so much fun that night and yet when i do other stuff people just say yeah he might be as useful as tits in a bowl he's fun to have around i don't know got it right? got so on the is enjoy life for christ's sake okay yes enjoy well, life yeah. all right second question you can only do one of these life has handed you sort of uh you know lemons and you've got to choose one of the two flying or sailing which one do you you keep and which one do you give up because you got to give up one of them oh that's a nasty one jesus that's not fair i'm going to say actually you know what i'm going to do it from an economic perspective okay boats are a lot cheaper than planes right all right 
That's, hey, that's enough said. I don't want to get into the weeds, but I know you love sailing and you yeah, love flying. Boat, you know, the boat is a hole in the water that right. you throw money into, but compared to planes, it's, planes, it's cheaper. Yeah, okay. yeah it's, it's pocket change. What's the best of these three brands? Teeling, Green Spot, or Red Breast? Hold on, say that again. Teeling, What's Green teeling? Spot, or Red Breast? I don't even recognize the first two. Well, what are they? They're Irish whiskeys. Oh, I'm not an Irish whiskey person. So, okay, so say, okay, so oh, hold on. Teelings, Teelings. Teelings, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Teeling. Okay, yeah. what's the second one? Green Spot. Now, forget that. Okay, be between Red Breast and Teelings. I actually go on because I took a tour of Teelings. I'm going to say Teelings. Got it. All right. What was the first question you asked Chat GPT? Oh, God. Oh, actually, well, the, how about the first useless one I did for I, I coach indigenous people, whatever. And by the way, I'm going to pre-nation of a Wiminji on Sunday for a week. Wow. Volunteering. But anyway, I put in a job posting and said, write a cover letter for this job posting and then cut and post it and gave it to the person. And she looked at it and goes, wow. <laughs> and like, and, and she probably wouldn't have applied, but it did 90% of it. And, and they, she's on her second interview. She passed her second, well, she's had her second interview. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. How would your closest family members, and, and maybe I'm talking about your cousins from Ireland, as opposed to your wife, how would they define what you actually do? Oh, they wouldn't. I would, I've got like 15 nieces and nephews, and they, they would be, and the cousins would be, John's just the mad uncle, and we have fun. <laughs> so they and, won't even describe what you do. They're, he's just the mad oh, uncle. Said, yeah, it was like, it was my, my brother. I had COVID. I wasn't able to get to my niece's wedding. Got COVID three days before. And, and after you say, yeah, my daughter gets up and says, our favorite drink and partner is Uncle John. Oh, that's hilarious. My final question for you, because you're well-read, you're curious like crazy. What's the book that has shaped you more than any other? If you could point to one book that has had an irrationally big impact on you, what would that be? And I realize there's millions because I know you're a big reader, but what, what one book might you consider nudges out the others in terms of its influence on your life, your thinking, your Republic by Plato. Really? Why, why is that? Because it still applies now. It'll never be implemented, but you look at what he was proposing. I mean, you, you couldn't do it, but you look at what in a utopian, well, no, even no, I mean, it's not that I necessarily agree with it, but it's just a challenge. And it is, yeah, it tries to describe a utopia, but it's human nature will never be able to step up to and meet requirements. And so within that for you, in terms of why it is, why it has influenced you, is it, is it that thing in you that longs for something that's impossible to achieve? What's the, what's the drawing card for you in that, in that, un, that unattainable thing? It's about, we've always got to improve. It can't, uh, the part of my problem was I could never accept the status quo. I mean, I wish I could. Life would be a lot easier. I wouldn't be keeping on challenging and getting in trouble and shit. You know, it's just like, but I just, I can't, when I see shit, it's like, I just, I have a low boredom threshold. I have a low patience threshold. And it's just, you know, there's something that we should aspire to. Yeah. And that's, that's, there's maybe, a, yeah, it's just the desire to, but yeah, but the desire to we can always improve right. and people to accept the status quo and not try to improve just pisses me off 
it's not a good use of human spirit in that. And it's we should all be and I have a I have a new book that's coming out, the Oh the Intergalactic Golden Teapot. That's the name that the Intergalactic Golden Teapot. Fate. Mm. It's a it's a fate document. Well, so when is this launching so that we uh, we can uh, connect to it? I I actually finished it, it finished the draft of it at two o'clock this morning. Oh, I need I need people I need somebody to do some illustrations for it, and it's basically actually based on the, the idea came from Bertrand Russell, who was an English mathematician and philosopher who talked about the teapot, right? And it's basically it's a, it's a philosophical thing that says, "Here's my fate." That's about love not judge mm-hmm. and as it is and then if you come into conflict you sit down and have a cup of right a cup mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. not right and so you know whether you're a klingon whether you're whatever the, the ewoks you're russian you're mexican you know have your cup of it and sit down and so there's no conflict we sit down and that's uh it's and i'm just saying my fate is as provable and then i have also reviews from Roman Catholics, Jews, Muslims, agnostics. And you know, they all agree that, yeah, it wouldn't be what we would do, but the basic tenets are the same. And it's just, our, our, my faith doesn't kill people. Yeah. It's a setup, okay? It's it's a, it's stirring it. it this is yeah. your, well, the, really, the, the, I, the I, other I, thing is, Tom, yeah, the other thing people would say, yeah, John is a stirrer. He stirs. Yes, he's, he's definitely a stirrer. And, and I have to say, as we come to the end of this, thank you for stirring the pot today. Doc John, you're a a hoot and a challenge and a all of the above, and it's been uh, it's been an absolute delight to uh, talk to you today and uh, and uh, get your wisdom, get your insight, get your anger, get your frustration, and have it all because it's all good. So thank you. Thank you, Tom. For having me.